Welcome to Tales from the Hearth, a podcast of folklore, fairy tales and food. In this episode, I bring you The Gifts of the Magician, from the Crimson Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. And before that, who knows? First you'll hear the story, and then I'll attempt to link it, probably in a somewhat tenuous fashion, to a food and recipe that I really enjoy. Once upon a time, there was a boy who lived in a forest with his father, in a small hut at the edge of the woods. His mother had died sadly some years before. Near their hut was a group of birch trees in which some pigeons had made their nests, and the young lad had often begged his father's permission to shoot them for target practice, but unfortunately his father always forbade them to do anything of the kind, and that's definitely a story for another time. One day, however, when the father had gone some distance away to collect wood for the fire, the boy could stand it no longer, the temptation was just too much, and he took out his bow and arrow and he shot one of the pigeons. Now either his skill was not what he thought, or the bird was faster than he thought, but unfortunately he just managed to wing the bird. No, the boy was not intrinsically bad. He was just 16 and a little arrogant, and he did not want the bird to be damaged and have to live in pain, so he ran after it. But although he seemed to run very fast, and the bird seemed to run very slowly along the ground, somehow he just couldn't catch it, and they went deeper and deeper and deeper into the wood, until he looked around and darkness had fallen, and he couldn't see the way home, and he was cold, and the bird had completely disappeared. He tried to follow the path along which he had come, but somehow it was always branching off into unexpected directions, and he looked about for a house where he might stop and ask his way, or even a shelter, but there wasn't a sign of one anywhere, and he was afraid to stand still, for it was so cold, and there were many stories of walls being unseen in that part of the forest. Night had completely fallen by this time, and the forest was very dark, and every noise made the boy start because he was starting to get very, very frightened. He didn't know if he'd survive the night. But then suddenly, a man appeared. There was a huge amount of noise behind him, and he realised the man was being chased by wolves. The head of the pack was right up behind him, and all of the courage suddenly returned to the boy. He took his bow and arrow, and he shot the wolf. And whether it was a lucky shot or his skill had come back to him, he suddenly realised he'd taken it out, and then he scattered some more arrows at the other wolves, they all ran away, frightened, especially after what happened to the leader of the pack. The magician, for it was a magician, was really appreciative, and he promised him a reward if he would come back to his house. Indeed, there is nothing that would be more welcome to me than a night's lodging, answered the boy. I've been wandering all day in the forest, and I didn't know how to get home again. Come with me, you must be hungry as well as tired, said the magician, and led the way to his house, where the boy flung himself on a bed and went fast asleep. It had been a long day, and he's a sixteen-year-old boy, and 16-year-old boys love to sleep. The magician then returned to the forest to hunt for food, as the larder was empty. Magicians not being very good at keeping their larder stocked, being mostly concerned with magic. Whilst the magician was gone, the housekeeper, who sadly hadn't been doing very much in the way of housekeeping, tried to wake up the boy. She shook him and shook him. She wanted to tell him what terrible danger he was in. Unfortunately, the boy could not be woken. Probably something to do with being a teenager, but she tried and she tried, but in the end had to give up. We didn't even awaken when the magician returned with food for the pot, and indeed slept through another whole day. Indeed, he did not awaken until the magician had gone back out for more supplies. This time, the housekeeper was able to talk to him, 
but knew he was safe because he'd saved the magician's life. She told him, he's going to offer you a reward, which obviously the boy was very excited about. But she said, you must must ask for the right reward. He has so many things he could give you, but what you need to ask him for is for the horse in the fourth stall in his stables. Can you remember that? The horse in the fourth stall in the stables. The magician then returned and they all sat around for their meal, enjoying what he'd managed to catch in the forest that day. After the meal, the magician turned to the boy and he said, you've saved my life. As you've saved my life, I want to give you a reward. What would you like? The boy remembered the housekeeper's advice and he said, I would like the horse in the fourth stall in the stable. The magician was a little bit suspicious about this, but he said, well, that's, that's my best horse. Is there anything else you'd like instead? But the boy was very specific and he said, no, that's definitely what I'd like, the horse in the fourth stall in the stable. The magician was a very good sport and because he'd said he could have anything, he gave the boy the horse from the fourth stall in the stable and he also gave him a zither, a fiddle and a flute. The magician told him that if he was ever in danger, he should play on the zither. And if no help came, then he should play on the fiddle. And if no help came, he would play on the flute. The boy remembered his manners and, thanks to the magician, strapped all of his instruments about him and climbed on the horse and rode off. He had only gone a couple of miles when suddenly the horse spoke to him. This was a huge shock, as you can imagine. It's not often you encounter a talking horse. Although you think perhaps he might have guessed something strange about it due to the fact it had come from a magician's house and it was his favourite horse. The horse suggested it's probably not a good idea to go home to his dad just at the moment, as shooting the pigeon is what had started all of the problems. Let's visit a few towns first and something lucky will be sure to happen to us. The boy, who at age 16 thought he really was a man by now, thought he should see the world, so they carried on. And carried on through some villages, through some towns, and eventually got to the capital city of the country they were in. Everyone loved the horse. They stopped to admire it, they wanted to just talk to the horse, they didn't realise the horse could talk back, and obviously it didn't to everyone. But they stroked the horse, they loved the horse, thought the horse was the most beautiful horse in all of the world. And eventually this came to the knowledge of the king, and he came to see the horse himself. He told the boy he would give him as much money, and no matter how much it was, for the horse. There was no limit to his budget. The boy wasn't very sure, because he'd come to enjoy having the horse. But it did seem very tempting to have so much money afterwards, even if it meant he didn't have a horse. However, he didn't actually have to make such a terrible decision, because before he could speak, the horse managed to whisper to him, Don't sell me. Ask the horse to take me to his stable and feed me there, and his other horses to become just as beautiful as me. I was thrilled with this. I took the horse off to the stable. No sooner had he taken two or three bites from the manger, when he looked around at all the other horses in the stable, suddenly looked young and beautiful. Many of these horses were old favourites of the king that he'd ridden to wars, and they were tired and old, but now they looked as they had when he'd first ridden them out to victory. The king was absolutely thrilled, and he told the boy that he could stay, and the horse would always have room in his stable. The boy was really happy, because he hadn't really known what he was going to do after his triumph with the horse transformations. However, not everyone was as happy as the king and the boy, the man who ran the stables, we'll call him the stable manager, was not happy. He was really, really envious of the boy and his skill. So he was constantly going to the king and telling him stories about what the boy had done. The king mostly ignored it, understanding that it was just coming from a point of jealousy from the stable manager. One day, however, he told a story to the king. He said that the boy had boasted that he could get the king's war horse back, who had disappeared into the forest some years ago. The king loved that horse and he'd never stopped mourning for him 
So eventually he just believed the stable manager and called the young man to him. Find me my horse in three days, said the king, or it'll be the worse for you. The lad was really thunderstruck. He didn't understand what had happened, but he bowed to the king and went off at once to the stable. His horse comforted him and told him not to worry. Just ask the king to give you a hundred oxen, he said, and let them be killed and cut into small pieces. Then we will start on our journey. As they travelled, the horse told him, soon we will reach a certain river. There a horse will come up to you, but take no notice of him. Soon another will appear, and this also you must leave alone. But when the third horse shows itself, throw my bridle over it. Everything happened just as the horse had suggested, and the third horse was safely bridled, and they were on their journey back to the king. The horse warned, The magician's raven will try to eat us as we ride away. If you throw back some flesh behind us as we ride, it will stop to eat us, and I can gallop like the wind and get us out of his clutches. Sensibly, the boy did what he was told, and it happened exactly as the horse had foretold. The stable manager was even more jealous when the horse was brought back to the king. He eventually thought of a plan and told the king that the youth had boasted that he could bring home the queen who had disappeared some months ago into the forest. So again, the king called the young lad to him and said, I've heard that you can find my queen. If you don't bring her back within three days, then your head will be forfeit. The lad was even more thunderstruck than before, but again he bowed and returned to the stable. He thought he might as well drop dead on the spot, because how could he find the queen when no one in the stables or the castle or anywhere in the country had been able to find her? He told the horse all of his worries. That's not a problem, said the horse. All you've got to do is ride me back to the same river we were at before, and I will plunge into it and take my proper shape again. For I am the king's wife who was turned into a horse by the magician, from whom you rescued me. All happened as the horse, stroke the queen, had said, and the most beautiful woman emerged from the river. Thankfully, the boy had had the forethought to bring two spare horses with him, and they both rode back to the palace. The king was overjoyed and heaped presents and thank yous on the boy. You'd think, after all of this excitement, that that would be it for the boy, and all would be well. Unfortunately, you'd be wrong. The stable manager was even more jealous, and he was determined to end the boy's life. He left it some time, but as soon as the newness and wonderfulness of the queen's return had worn off, he went to the king and told him that he'd heard a conspiracy that the boy was trying to take over his throne and had turned all his nobles against him. The king, who you'd think would know better after all of this time and all the things that happened, was furious. He believed the stable manager again and called the boy into his presence. He told the boy that he had heard all about his dastardly plans and that he would be hanged in the morning. The boy spent a night in a jail cell. He didn't sleep, obviously he was terrified and was so, so distraught and thought it was so unfair when he'd done absolutely nothing. And he just kept fretting and thinking and fretting and thinking and crying just a little bit. And then fretting and thinking. And then suddenly he remembered. The horse was not the only thing he carried away from the magician's house. He eventually managed to get some sleep. And the next morning he was led to the gallows. He was a little bit overawed. Everyone was there, the whole of the court. And as many people of the capital city could squeeze into the courtyard around the gallows. We mustn't judge them. This was a much darker time. And there was very little in the way of entertainment. As he stood on the gallows, he looked towards the king and asked if he could have a favour. The king, who had calmed down just a touch by then, but not enough that he would stop the hanging, agreed that he could have a favour, as long as it wasn't didn't take too long. The boy asked if he could have his zither and play one final tune before his death. The king could see nothing wrong with this, and so the boy's zither was brought to him, and he started to play, and he played, and he played... And everyone in the courtyard started dancing and laughing and dancing and they couldn't seem to stop. The more the zither played, the more they carried on dancing until suddenly it was night time and the hanging couldn't go ahead because everyone had been dancing, including the hangman, was absolutely exhausted. 
So the boy was returned to his cell. He was a bit concerned because no help had come from his first attempt, but he did not despair, as he wasn't hanged yet. The second day went pretty much the same as the last, only this time he played the fiddle, and if anything, people danced even harder than the day before. The boy was again returned to his cell, but this time the king was determined that the boy would not survive the next day. At dawn, the boy mounted the gallows again. He asked for another favour. The king was reluctant, but seeing all his people around him and not wanting to look like the tyrant that he actually was, he agreed that it could happen. But he asked for some time, and he got himself tied to the tree, so that no matter what happened, he wouldn't dance, and he could carry out the sentence if necessary. The boy started to play the flute, and the dancing started again, with if possible even more vigour and passion than the day before. The king rubbed his back raw against the tree as he tried to escape his bonds and still carried on dancing. The boy carried on playing desperately. He knew he wouldn't survive another night if help didn't come. But at that moment, the magician honoured his word and appeared, if a little overdramatically, in a puff of smoke and a swirl of his cloak. What danger are you in, my son, that you sent for me? He said, they want to hang me. The galleries are already in the hangers only waiting for me to stop playing. I'll put that right, said the magician. And he tore up the gallows and threw them so high into the air that no one knows where they came down. Who ordered this hanging? The boy pointed wordlessly at the king, who was still tied to the tree. And without wasting any words, which is unusual for him, the magician took hold of the tree in such a huge heave into the air that the tree and the man were never seen again. The boy was released instantly. And, as he'd been so resourceful to have managed to find the king's horse and the king's wife when the king had easily lost both of them, it was decided that he would make a good king. The boy accepted the job. I mean, who doesn't want to be king? However, he did make sure to keep the queen very close by, as she clearly knew lots more about ruling than he did, and was definitely wiser than he was, as she had been the reason that he'd managed to both find the horse and herself. The stable manager had very sensibly disappeared, and no one bothered to try and find him. As everyone knows, that whoever has a mind take to wickedness is sure to end badly. And that is where this tale ends, although not necessarily the story. So may fortune preserve you, gentle listener, and may your days be filled with constant joys, and I hope my story pleased you, for it had no other purpose. If you're only here for the story, now is probably a time to switch off. But if you'd like to know a little bit more about the food that's contained in the story, then please listen on. I must admit that this was really bad planning. I love the story and I wanted it to be the first one that I did on the podcast. However, what I didn't factor in is there's very little food in this story, so it's quite hard. However, I wanted the story, so I've so please forgive me for this very tenuous link. Do you remember the bit in the story where the horse told the boy to throw bits from the hundred oxen for the raven to eat so they could escape? Well, imagine if the tales of all of those oxen were lying around. You need some good oxtail recipes to use them all up. So here we are. I did mention it was tenuous. Oxtail is an amazing ingredient. The bones create a rich stock and the meat breaks down into a sticky, savoury deliciousness. Well, it does if you're prepared to have some patience. It does need to be cooked very slowly on a very low heat. Otherwise you don't get any of those things. In order to get a better picture of this ingredient, I thought I'll look into its history. I have to be honest, I thought it would be quite a short Google. I'd be relaxed reading recipes from 1556 and telling me that you know, Tudor kings had enjoyed it. You'd be very wrong. I was very wrong. It turns out it's got quite a strange history. Oxal appears in lots of cultures, and without starting a PhD, it's difficult to tell whether all the cultures simultaneously just looked at the ox one day and thought, 
why are we wasting that bit on the tail when we cook absolutely everything else, or whether one or two cultures influenced the others. So, back to England. It turns out that the actual first mention of oxtail, possibly as ingredient for cooking, is in the laws of Ina, dated around C 688 to 695. It pops up again in 1482 and in 1500, so we are getting closer to those Tudor kings. Um, but there are quite a lot of years between where the oxtail recipes remain undocumented. Sadly, my knowledge of Old and Middle English is practically zero, apart from some of the ruder bits of Chaucer. So I had to move on to some books I could actually read for more research. That's where the problem really started, because although ox was mentioned, and lots of different bits of ox, and in medicine and animal husbandry, will definitely shy away from the very vivid description I read about ox castration. But it turns out there was no mention of actual oxtail. There was ox head in 1631, ox cheeks in 1756, ox gall in 1631 again, ox bladder 1669, ox marrow 1669, ox tongue 1631, and a general sort of perception of the wonderfulness of ox meat, but still no oxtail. Well, at least not until 1827. There was a cheeky ox rump in 1810, which is probably the same as oxtail in context, but I'm probably reaching. I couldn't really find much reason for this. A lot of texts explain this by saying that oxtail soup and oxtail stews originated with Huguenot refugees moving to London in the late 1700s, using ingredients discarded by British butchers and their French cookery knowledge to make the now famous oxtail soup. I find this quite odd and difficult to believe that people living in poverty in London didn't touch the oxtail until they were shown how to do that by the incoming Huguenots. I'm very happy to concede it probably tasted better, um, but if you're already cooking ox heads and tongues in 1631, and almost certainly earlier, I don't know why you'd ignore the tail. However, I couldn't find any written evidence anywhere, and I really tried. If anyone's got a citation, I'd love to hear it. It's not as though they weren't cooking it, it's just that they didn't write it down. As my dad said, they probably just called it fly swatter soup and got on with it, longing for a day when they actually got to eat a better bit of the cow. So for anyone that's lost, um, we're in 1827 now, and we have the first, well, the first one I could find, written evidence of oxtail soup in a popular recipe book. And after that, it seemed like it was everywhere. Even the early celebrity chef Alexis Sawyer got in on the act in 1854, putting it in his book, A Shilling Cookery for the People. At the current price of oxtail, you wouldn't get a lot for a shilling. That's about £3 in purchasing power, at least from when the book was printed. Currently, oxtail is selling for about £6.50 up to £12.50 per kilo. At those prices, and with the time it takes to cook it, you really want something special from your oxtail. I decided to make Diana Henry's recipe. It's oxtail with star anise and orange. It's an Asian-inspired recipe with strong flavours. The bones create a rich stock and the meat breaks down into a sticky, savoury deliciousness, with hints of aniseed sweetness and a touch of mouth-numbing pepper in the sauce. If you can't wait to rest it overnight, it's still wonderful, but it's even better if you can resist the temptation. All credit for this recipe goes to Diana Henry. All I've done is reduce the amount of oxtail and strip the cooked meat from the bones in order to serve it back in the sauce. If you're interested in making the recipe, it's available on my blog and on the show notes. The blog also contains a photo of the recipe, as well as some of the books and extra details about the research I did in producing this podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, listen out next week for another story, recipe and probably some more food history, hopefully with a slightly less tenuous link. My blog can be found in the show notes or navigate directly to www.hestiaskitchen.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening to Tales from the Hearth.
a podcast about folklore, fairy tales and food.